Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Okay, uh, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. It's uh, me, Barry Katz. You guys are amazing, and I'm very, very excited about the guest I have today, Ali Leroy. Normally, I like to do in the beginning, which sort of has a relationship to the guest. And Ali, um, I he probably doesn't know this about me, but I was in Boston doing comedy in the 80s, in the early, early 80s. And the one place that was a really hot club for comedy back then was a place called the Comedy Connection, uh, which was inside the Charles Playhouse on Warrington Street in Boston. And I was an up-and-coming open micer, and I'd, uh, when you were an open micer back then in the 80s, what would happen is, you know, there weren't a lot of comedians in any city. So on an open mic night, there might be, you know, five to eight comedians, and then you'd be interspersed with these pros from Boston or whatever town you were from that went on in between you. And then occasionally there was an act that came in from out of town that uh, would go on as well. And I was on this open mic night, and I was doing these open mics with people like Bobcat Goldthwaite and... um, um, guys that were like really up and coming, Greg, a Tony V who uh, has been in a lot of movies and, and we were doing our thing. And then one night, um, an act showed up from Chicago. Um, and 
something you guys should know about Boston in the 80s. Um, well, I'll put it to you this way. Um, concert promoting. There was never an African-American act that worked at Boston Garden while I was in college at Boston University. And there was a guy, a young guy from Harvard, who promoted African-American acts, and he had to bring them to Providence, Rhode Island, or Hartford. And that guy was Al Heyman. And so when you were in Boston doing comedy, even though it was a major city, there were no black men or women doing comedy. If there was somebody doing comedy that was a black man or a woman, they were pandering to the white audience. Like there was a guy who used to host shows. His name was Jimmy Smith, and his nickname was Captain Brofather. So you can just imagine, it, it, you know, what it was like. So I'm doing this open mic night, and I go on, and Goldthwaite goes on, and we're doing our thing, and we're, we're doing really well. We feel like we're killing and we're not really paying attention, but there's a, you know, there's a, a group of black guys in the room. And, you know, it's very rare to see anybody black in, in this comedy club. It was like, you know, going to a Dane Cook concert at Boston Garden and seeing a black person that would be very rare. Um, it's just the way it was. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. We didn't think much of it. And all of a sudden, the host introduce the act ladies and gentlemen please welcome from chicago mary wong and i'm thinking to ourselves mary wong boy we we didn't see any asian women in here this is great you know this is great let's check out you don't even see women in comedy boston that much this is exciting and coming to the stage are three black guys and one of those black guys was Lance Crowther, who is a four-time Emmy Award-winning uh, writer, producer. Uh, the other man, whose name escapes me, could you tell me who that person's name was? It's Timothy Miller. Timothy Miller, that's right. And the third person in that troupe was a young man named Ollie Leroy. And they went on and... They fucking destroyed the place. I mean, it was like a level of killing that I had never seen since maybe Bobcat Goldthwait did like some of his first shows at the club. I mean, people were fucking going crazy. It was like Def Jam with a white audience. People were applauding, bobbing up and down, getting out of their seats, you know, high-fiving each other. We're like, Jesus, we thought we killed. Who the fuck are these people? And they're doing sketches and part stand-up and intricate bits. It was like the kind of thing that, it was like a hybrid of an improv troupe, only there were only three of them. And I'd never experienced anything like it with three people. And honestly, I've never seen anything like it since. I don't, I don't even remember or, or think, and I'm, I'm a savant when it comes to comedy. I can't even think of anybody else who does a three-person act. Maybe Axis of Awesome, uh, they're a musical act out of, uh, I think, Australia, who are fantastic. But... I, I, um, Corky and the Juice Pigs, maybe from Canada, but 
I'd never seen anything like it. So, and when they got off stage, you know, said hello to them and met them, uh, which he probably doesn't remember. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself as they walked out the door, God, those guys were great. God, I hope they don't move here. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Okay. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me. Uh, my <laughs> guest today is an amazing man. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I am not a friend of this man. I have never befriended this man. I have never reached out to this man. We have rolled in the same circles for th- 25 or 30 years. And this is the first time I am in front of him since I met him at the Comedy Connection in Boston and somewhere in the 80s. Uh, I have friends who know him. I have clients who know him. He's produced shows that I've had people on. And I have never once approached him, called him, or emailed him until just recently when a client of mine, Owen Smith, uh, started working on Arsenio and Ali uh, here is uh, actually um, a uh, producer on the show and a director on the show and a consultant, and um, and they're very good friends. And I thought to myself, you know, oh, when you think I should reach out to Ali or whatever to do the podcast, and he, he said, sure, reach out to him. And then I realized as I looked in my contacts in my computer that has 13,000 fucking contacts, and I type in Ali Leroy, <laughs> and there is nothing in there at all. It does not exist, and I had to reach out to Owen again and say, I don't know how to tell you this, but could you maybe give me his email address? And he did, and I reached out, and he accepted the offer to come here. And so Ali, uh, I want to tell you a little about him. He is a Emmy Award-winning executive producer and director, uh, worked on a, works on the hit series for TBS, Are We There Yet?, which got an unprecedented order of a hundred episodes. Uh, he's also the co-creator of the critically acclaimed comedy, Everybody Hates Chris. I always hate when people say critically acclaimed. You know why? It's kind of like dental records. You only hear <laughs> dental records when it comes to somebody being murdered or there's something wrong with your fucking teeth. When you're critically acclaimed, it's never like a critically acclaimed, but it made $300 million at the box office. And monetarily acclaimed. It's never, yeah, so it's like, but still, it, I don't understand that because Everybody Hates Chris has gone almost, I think he's gone like 100 episodes. It's in syndication. Uh, he uh, created that with Chris Rock. He's a Golden Globe nominee, a two-time NAACP Image Award winner. Uh, a WGA nominee and winner of the 2007 AFI TV Program of the Year Award. 
Um, he was also a producer and writer on the HBO show, The Chris Rock Show. Notice how I didn't say critically acclaimed because clearly <laughs> that must have gotten more viewers than Everybody Hates Chris. Um, he won an Emmy for that, a Cable Ace Award. He's had five Emmy Award nominations, which is Five times more than I've had. I've only had one nomination for a reality show, which I didn't win. And uh, I'm sitting across from a guy. But you made money on it. I made money on it. It's not critically acclaimed. It was not critically acclaimed, which means the show probably (laughs) blows. Um, He also has worked in movies. He uh, uh, produced and co-wrote Head of State and Down to Earth, as well as producing the cult favorite, another term, cult favorite. You can put that with dental <laughs> records, <laughs> critically acclaimed. So, uh, Pootie Tang, which starred his partner in crime from Mary Wong, Lance Crowther, as Pootie Tang. <laughs> as I said, he's also serving as a consulting producer and director on the Arsenio Hall show, and he's presently promoting and uh, also developing new uh, comedy projects all the time. Um, I'll also say that he was recently promoted to the board of um, the Producers Guild of America and elected president of Humanitas, which is an incredible nonprofit organization that gives awards and promotes the craft of television and film writers. Um, So please welcome, if you will, my guest today, Ali Leroy. (laughs) Ali, 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 Ali. I can't believe it. What's wrong with me? How come I've never it's sat across n- it's, from you? It's not you. I had been successfully avoiding you up until now. I must be. I'm, <laughs> I must be critically acclaimed. <laughs> Either that or I'm a cult. You, you know, you set certain goals in your life, and I and I met you in the club at the Comedy Connection back then. I, was like, I wonder how long I can avoid this guy. Well, you have succeeded. It's yes, unbelievable. up until now. Now I have failed. You have failed. You've and got me. I can guarantee you. After this, we won't <laughs> see each other for another thirty years. I'm, I'm no, I'm, I'm not an easy person to, uh, uh, to catch up with. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I don't know if I'm antisocial. Uh, I mean, I function well in social circumstances, but, but I tend to skew loner. If you know what I mean. Got it. No, yeah. I do. I'm a, I'm a loner, too. Yeah. So, um, well, there you go. I am a loner, too. So, as I normally do with these podcasts, I like to start off at the beginning. Way, way, way back at the beginning. You so, went way back, so yeah. So, this is the scoop. Uh-huh. I want to know, when was the moment that happened in your life? Like, in other words, up to that moment, there was not even a thought of anything having to do with show business and then something happened and you're like, I think I want to be in that kind of business. What happened? Where were you? Where were you living? What was your family like? Did you have brothers and sisters? How did it all come about? And Well, I, I, I think in a, in a practical way, I, I never actively made the decision to be in show business. I kind of got pulled into it by other people who had made that decision. Uh, which is to say this, um, uh, I was a kid, I used to love variety shows, that sort of thing. I like to write. Uh, my first inter- What were the variety shows that you first watched as a um, kid? It was, you were talking Carol Burnett, uh, Flip Wilson, Bill Cosby had a big variety show. All of these are back in the early 70s. Sonny and Cher, big variety show. I mean, it was all kinds of people. Back then, uh, if, if you were a, a big personality, 
then uh, that was the sort of show that they would give you. So, I mean, we're talking people like Mac Davis, you know, yeah. at a variety show. Sure. You know, if you were a singer, you were popular, they put you on over Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. You're a singer. You come out, you introduce some people, they put on a comedian, a band, you sing a song. And just to know, just so you know, like, and, and you're a historian with this, and for the audience, back then, that is what they did. They didn't, they didn't even think about the consequences of that somebody couldn't pull off comedy. Right. So, like, you would just, if Mac Davis had a hit song. Right. And a hit country song, and he was the number one artist and the number one touring artist, and that would just say, here, let's give this guy his own show. And then they would bring in writers like Ali um, to create and to put this show together and make it work but you were dealing with somebody who had no skill set in comedy and so there were a lot of shows that they don't talk about back then that came on and went down and were canceled Uh, the things you hear about of course are carol burnett but she was a comedy she was a genius (laughs) she was a genius there's only one person that i know of uh actually two people that i know of that were highly successful with no comedy background that killed, and that was because of the sexual tension between them and the dynamic of beauty and the beast. Right, and that was Sonny and Cher. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and that was the only one where two people that didn't have any experience in comedy right, 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 right. were killing. But keep going. I'm yeah. sorry. So, uh, I mean, that was the stuff I, you know, that was the stuff I watched on TV. You know, certain sitcoms. I was a big Dick Van Dyke fan uh, as a kid growing up, and that was my first. Uh, experience with the idea of what entertainment was. You know, this was a guy that wrote comedy for a living, but you saw his home life. You know, you saw part of his work life, which is going into a room, kicking around jokes for another guy that we barely saw, Alan Brady. (laughs) And then the other part of it was his home life, wife and kids. So that was just my first kind of behind the scenes look at, oh, okay, that's what entertainment sort of is. Uh, uh, I got into high school and... um, I got a job uh, uh, at school writing on the school newspaper. I had a column. Uh, I liked comedy. I was always a comedy reader, and I became uh, something of a comedy writer because of newspaper columnists. Um, Like like Irma Bombeck? Irma Bombeck, uh, Bennett Cerf, Bob Green, uh, Mike Royko. For those of you who don't know, who are too young to remember, uh, there were a ton of syndicated columns when we were growing up. That featured these great writers. They'd have their picture in the thing, and but they'd be strictly comedy, and a lot of times they were older people, yeah, humorists, humorists. Thank you. <laughs> so I, I read a lot of these people. Uh, one that that stood out to me was a guy. Uh, these are all Chicago newspapers. Sidney J. Harris was, uh, you know, opinions and, and again and again humor. Uh, uh, the bit that he used to do that I remember is he had a column he would do uh, regularly called Things I Learned in Route to Looking Up Other Things. You know, I just like that sort of rise sensibility. There were comedy albums in the house. There was, uh, you know, there was, you know, Carlin stuff was there. And, and now you're so your parents bought comedy albums. Yes, my mother. Your mother bought my Carlin mother was albums. a huge comedy fan. Got it. Yeah. And was your, your mom and dad together when you were? No, my mom and dad split when I was uh, maybe six. So that's, so, that, so that's tough. Yeah. And how many kids were there at the time? Uh, she had seven all together. No, eight all together. One kid died uh, before I was born, two marriages. So I was the last child in her second marriage. Okay. Uh, there were three kids to the second marriage and then five from the first so you had all those kids who had experienced the separation of a parent leaving. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, um, I mean, it's it's a very detailed uh, story. It's actually it's quite traumatic. The reason why I talk about this is I have this thing sometimes when I'm sitting across from somebody and I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. I don't know what happens. But I feel these things. And when you sit when you sat down immediately when you sat down. Right. I felt like. There was some shit that went down. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Early on. Uh-huh. And and I think it's important to talk about it because there's a lot of artists out there that are driven by the events that happen right. in the beginnings. Right. So whatever you can talk about would be I think would be really helpful and really give people the perspective of, of what it really takes to get to the next level. Because honestly, for the most part, a lot of people go through that adverse adversity at a very young age when they don't have the emotional tools in their toolbox to deal with them. Right. And so they bury themselves in comedy or art or music right. or dance or, or writing to try to escape. And there's right now, anybody that's listening now, there's somebody, you know, a young person in their room just writing in their diary or their tablet. There's another person performing music uh, uh, in front of a camera for a YouTube video. Yeah, well, well-balanced people typically don't need to uh, attempt to, you know, entertain droves of people. (laughs) (laughs) In in order to just get through the day, <laughs> it's not something that a well balanced person does. Most people in in show business are kind of nuts. Uh, it's it's just a and 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 whatever way you come by it. I mean, in my case, uh, um, the I was not aware. My mother passed in two thousand one. She was seventy two uh, at the time. And then my dad passed in two thousand five, uh, and he was eighty four um they separated when i was maybe six years old uh and to the best of my knowledge they never saw each other again uh didn't speak never divorced so technically they were both still married uh 40 years after splitting up um neither one of them ever remarried um and at a point i lost track of my father for an easy 20 years and had to track him down uh that's another story uh but my mother um i didn't really realize uh i've been through therapy the whole thing you know uh, i i suffered benign neglect as a child (laughs) uh what's your definition of benign neglect um benign neglect is not getting the sort of attention or interaction that you need in order to kind of make you a whole person, you know, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a great deal of disconnect, uh, for me. Uh, so even when you just said that, you know, 25 years from the time, you know, perhaps that we first met, like I've lived in my mind, like several lives since that time. And I have problems trying to remember what happened during certain periods of time. But I have a picture in my head of like what the inside of the comedy connection looked like. I remember that room. I remember there was just this little, very narrow passageway from the green room to the stage that you used to have to go through. Two people couldn't fit through it. 
<laughs> you know, right. and just the idea of trying to make it to that stage with three people, you know, was something of, of, a, of, of a chore. You know, I remember how the, 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 the lights kind of hit that the backdrop they had on the wall. And it was a small, tight room, but it was a lot of energy. Um, so it's just you, you become attuned to certain sorts of things. Uh, so anyway, back to, to, to my mom. Uh, she had she had uh, gotten married. I guess she was born in 1928 if if I'm remembering correctly and I think she had her first kid when she was maybe 17 years old something like that uh she got married uh and she would subsequently have uh, uh four more kids so by the time she was 24 years old uh she had five kids um incredible so when her she had uh, two girls, a boy, then two more girls, and shortly after the birth of her last daughter, who's ten years older than me, um, her son, who was maybe three or four at the time, uh, died of uh, what I was told was dehydration. We live in Chicago. Summers get very, very humid there. Uh, I don't know all of the circumstances surrounding it. I was never told a full story. But the uh, the son died. And uh, the story that I'm telling you now, I didn't really get all of the details until I was over 40 years old, maybe 45, after my mother died. Uh, she died when I was 41, I think, something like that. Um, I didn't find this out until after this. So... So the, the, the son died, and subsequent to that, her husband, uh, working in a consortium with the mother-in-law, uh, conspired to take the other children away from her and get her committed to uh, an institution. They were successful. <laughs> so she spent maybe a year... Um, she was institutionalized and she'd had the death of a child and so she came out. She couldn't get her kids back. Uh, I was told that uh, shortly after that, she may have had a second marriage to an abusive husband who she stayed married to for uh, months, not even a full year. Uh, and then uh, they divorced. And then she met my dad. Uh, and I had to do the math um, because it, it was a very odd sort of uh, uh, I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around certain things about my mother. She was very, very she was a very positive person, uh, always looking on the bright side, always trying to find decent things to say, uh, you know, didn't matter what sort of duress. Uh, she she was under she always kind of tried to find a, a, a her the phrase she used to say this is and and, and I, I said this in a eulogy for her at her funeral she always used to say uh, it won't always be like this so whenever we were having a hard time that was the thing that she would say and it not until I'm over 40 do I really get the gravity of what that meant for her so there were a lot of things that I wish she had done um uh, I didn't meet these other four sisters that I have. I didn't meet them until I was probably 10 or 11 years old. She did not tell me <laughs> that she had another group of kids from a, I didn't know anything about it. Where were those kids living? In the same city. 
But with who? Uh, with their uh, they they the the dad, the husband from the first marriage, kept the daughters and kept a relationship with them, and she was all but uh, uh, frozen out of that relationship. He would eventually get remarried, and my mother built something of a relationship with his new wife enough so that the new wife would occasionally bring her daughters to different places where she could meet them and spend a little time with them. But her kids were taken away from her. Uh, four daughters. And and you have to remember that this is in Chicago in the 1950s. In the black community in the 1950s in Chicago, a businessman who she married got the kids. So that's, you know, that's virtually unheard of. Now, you don't take the kids away from the mother when the when the dad is a man of means, etc. Uh, and so this is what they did. So, however, you know, that impacted her. So in, in terms of skipping around and telling a story, what what I was able to determine at a certain point was. When I talk about benign neglect, the inability of my mother to forge a real connection with me and even uh, my, my brother and sister from the from the same marriage, same dad, I think was based in this trauma that she had gone through because she lost three kids and the only boy she ever had died. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think that that almost made it impossible for her to connect. And and this I guess this is what I wanted to get at. So let's say and I'm, I'm throwing around numbers, but these are fairly accurate. So she probably had she's probably pregnant when she was 16 with her first child, had her first child by the time she was uh, 17. Between the ages of 17 and 23, she had five kids. When she's 24, one of them dies. When she's 25, they take the rest of the kids away. She's institutionalized. When she's about 26, she gets out of an institution. She marries a man that tries to kill her. She gets divorced. When she's around 27, that's when she meets my dad. Um, she marries him probably inside of a year or so because my my oldest brother was born late in 1957. So that means she was pregnant sometime early in 1957. And so that means that that relationship, you know, took shape and form sometime in the middle of 1956 or so, which was about three years after this other kid died and all these other things happened to her. Right. So then she'd have three more kids. And and by 1967, she split up with with my dad. So just the amount of trauma that a 24 year old had gone through. When I when I did the math. It's like, wow, it's it's shocking. And her love of comedy and her disposition towards positivity, uh, there's a there's a character, um uh Juliana Margulies on ER played Carol Hathaway. And I remember on the pilot of ER, uh you know, you're seeing this, you know, you're seeing this show for the first time and, you know, and they're dealing with all of the drama that's going on in the emergency room in this hospital in Chicago. And what was unique about her character is that it was Christmas. 
and everyone was wrapped up in the business of dealing with, you know, all the pain and death and misery. And she's walking around, she's chipper and she's singing and she's handing out candy or whatever it is that she's doing. You know, she's the one positive light in the midst of all of this despair. And what you discover about her is that she's previously tried to kill herself. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so that person is like, hey, I'm not sad. (laughs) <laughs> I've seen sad. I know what sad looks like. You guys are playing around with sad. I've seen the real deal, so I'm not doing that anymore. And that that position reminds me of of my mother. So when I was young, she used to watch a lot of comedy. She loved comedy. She loved anything that took her out of that. She used to watch musicals, Busby Berkeley musicals, you know, uh, Astaire and Rogers, dancing, all this stuff. She loved it all. You know, uh, so that's the stuff that I grew up watching. You know, she loved Broadway shows. She never went to one. You know, uh, uh, Liza with a Z. You know, I grew up listening to that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Cabaret. She loved Cabaret. Joel Grey. You know, these are the things that were in my house. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Was it common? This is an odd thing to ask, but coming from a uh, the whitest person on earth that I am, was it odd like, you know, you'd have friends come over and from the community and the black community and you know, hey, like Joel Gray was playing in the background or Cabaret and anything from Cabaret or Liza Minnelli when, you know, uh, or was it common to have a lot of, you know, white artists playing in the household and, and rallying around those artists? Well, I mean, you, the thing. The reason why I ask mm-hmm. is because this is an odd thing that the, the audience of this podcast knows about me is like my start in comedy was, um, also uh through trauma similar to you my mom's uh, first husband passed away when he was 30 and my dad passed away when he was 37 so my mom was somebody dealing with the trauma mm-hmm. and there were comedy albums in the house and i didn't know that they were there until i pried open a, a file cabinet <laughs> and this is why i'm asking that mm-hmm. because i was from an all-white neighborhood and in this file cabinet were all black artists okay nat king cole louis armstrong diana ross uh the supremes uh just all sorts of artists of that ilk and there were only three white artists in that entire file cabinet right 
and they happen to be comedians. Uh, Jonathan Winters, the mm-hmm. uh, comedy tragedy. Right. Smothers Brothers, Crabs Walk Sideways and Lobsters Walk Straight. Okay. And the button-down mind of right. Bob Newhart. Okay. And so the reason why I'm asking is I was, there, was no, there were no black people in my entire town of 15,000, yet I pry open this cabinet and here it is a white family at all black albums and, and just a few white ones. So was it, I was just wondering for, from the perspective of the reverse, for a black family, was it common to have a lot of white artists that people listened to and rallied around or wasn't common? Well, I mean, the dynamic is different. You know, I recently saw an article about, uh, uh, you know, why don't white people like, you know, quote unquote, black movies and why do black people, you know, like, quote unquote, white movies. Uh, and, and and the idea of the dynamic is, is that when you're uh, uh, black, you don't really have the choice to exclude this entire body of of entertainment because that's what you're exposed to on a, on a daily basis. So it's always kind of part of your world. Now, whether or not um, you are into that ex- exclusively or whether it's just a part of, of what, because I, you know, for my mother, you know, she was also a fan of, you know, of Pearly and, and a big show then was your arms too short to box with God. So these are a lot, you know, I mean, she she was she had, I think, a a broad range of sensibilities, you know, uh, but the first uh, uh, the first album I bought for her as a birthday gift was Frank Sinatra, Blue Eyes is Back. Wow. So I'm just saying that in terms of of, of points of reference, you know, uh, you know, she was a smart woman. She and like I say, you know, she had uh, she had taste. Yeah, so you know, so so you're in this situation. You have the comedy as, as the background. So what's your first move? You're in high school. You're going, and what's happening? What do you decide? Are you writing for the newspaper? But, but but I mean, what what happens after that? Well, I'm writing for the school newspaper, uh, and I have a column. So I'm writing kind of a comedy column based on like these guys that like the Roycos and the Sidney J. Harris's that sort of thing. Lance Crowther, we were in the same uh, uh, um, grade. Uh, I think we were in the same homeroom at the time. Uh, he takes note of this and he approaches me and says, I have a comedy group with some other guys. Now, at that time, I had never heard of uh, Monty Python. I was a Marx Brothers fan. Uh, I was not a Three Stooges fan. <laughs> you know, I was a Smothers Brothers fan. <laughs> you know, uh, so it was, you know, I, these sort of things, right? You, you say Three Stooges, and I, 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 this is, again, I feel like this kindred spirit with you. <laughs> because I, my mom used to place me in front of the television, and in my area, all you had was the Three Stooges. And yeah, I would, I would watch fan. the Three Stooges every day, and I just would never laugh. And my mom finally came <laughs> into me. One time after I laughed one time really, really hard. Right. And she said, why are you laughing? And I said, well, um, something happened that made me laugh. And she said, what was it? I said, well, uh, Larry uh, said to Mo, what do you think? And and, and Mo retorted and said, uh, Larry, every time you think, you weaken the nation. <laughs> and I laughed my ass off, and it was for something that wasn't a physical piece right, of comedy. Right, 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 right. So anyway, so but you... you so, I mean, so that was the stuff I was into. So Lance approached me and uh, said that he was working with some guys, and they had a comedy group. And he asked me if I wanted to be in it. 
Uh, so Lance pulled me into this group, and at that time, it was him, uh, the same guy, Tim, it was two or three other uh, guys. Um, I don't remember all their names right now. Um, and they, they called the group at the time the Noid Brothers, N-O-I-D. Um, and uh, we ended up doing a talent show together in high school, Lynn Bloom Technical High School in Chicago. Uh, we did a talent show there. In uh, that show, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they did a bunch of sketches, and and I did. Uh, I was the unknown comic. You remember uh, Chuck Barris Gong Show? Yeah, of and course. they used to have the unknown comic used to come on, and I was doing the unknown comic doing a eulogy for a guy <laughs> in a you know in a funeral. So, I mean, that was the first bit I I ever did with them. Uh, uh, after that. Uh, Lance was the one that spearheaded this effort, or at least that's that was that was the way. Uh, that's my understanding of it. Um, he decided that uh, uh, he would change the name of the group. Now, at that time, also we were kind of fringe in terms of you know all of the things that we liked, you know, so kindred spirits in that regard, and uh, you know we were all you know major rock fans. So if you know anything about, you know, the, the, the rock groups in that time, they a lot of them were famous for having, you know, singular names with groups. You know, Leonard Skinner, Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, you know, that thing. Uh, so um, I don't know if it was Lance or Lance and Tim who came up with the name and the idea that this group of all black guys would have an Asian woman's name. And the name they chose was Mary Wong. <laughs> And then we started to go out and and do shows, uh, you know, as Mary Wong. And 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 you were gaining a lot of respect and a lot of uh, you were getting a lot of laughs. And a lot of you out there should know it's like the hardest thing for uh, a straight stand-up who's doing comedy who just has his own voice and is just a man in the microphone. You're on these shows, and you know, you're, there's a guitar comic on. Right. There's an impressionist. There's somebody right. high energy and. It's hard to really break through, and and normally improv sketch people, they can't kill in a stand-up club. They don't. They can't make it work. But you guys were insanely. I mean, the response was incredible. Did it? And w- when did you know that you were actually going to start making money at, as this group, and you were actually going to get gigs places? Well, first of all, the way that we approached. Uh, you know, entering the business um, was different because, uh, first of all, we were in Chicago, you know, so being in Chicago, that's the, you know, that's the land of improvisation. It's all about Second City. If you're a group, you're an improv group. We didn't like that. We, we had, we made a clear decision that, you know, in the face of all the other improv groups that were out there, uh, the one of the one of the biggest at the time, uh, Steve and Leo, Steve Rudnick of and Leo Benvenuti were huge in Chicago at that time. Uh, there was a, a uh, there was another group headed up by a, a woman named Maureen Fitzpatrick, who is now an executive at uh, CBS. I know. I just did a deal with her. <laughs> right, right. See, uh, Maureen was in a group called Moving Targets. We all worked at. It all a, comes full circle yeah. because you're working with Maureen now. Yes, I'm working with Maureen now, and we we used to uh, perform at a uh, I forget. This comedy showcase was a converted church on Diversity Avenue, and we all worked there. Emo Phillips worked there. Judy Tenuta worked there. You know, so there were a lot of us in that building. Uh, 
But we didn't want to do improv, the idea of getting on stage and then the first thing you do is ask for the support and help of the audience to help you, you know, come up with an idea, execute it. Are we going to do the freeze tag game or whatever it is? (laughs) Give me a suggestion for a name and a place. Some people did that really well, but we just wanted to stand in deference to that. So our thing was let's write and perform what we're going to do. We're going to bring a presentation to the stage. We're not going to ask you to do anything but sit there and watch. And we didn't, uh, we also didn't frequent all of the improv spots. We went to the comedy clubs. So, uh, you know, the, the biggest improv spot we did was the, the comedy showcase. But usually we went to Zany's. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another club called Who's on First that was out in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, there was a little place called Comedy Cottage. Uh, the Comedy Cottage had a stage that was probably, you know, six feet by eight feet, you know, with three people on it. That's not a <laughs> lot of room. Uh, and so we paced our act and we structured and created our act to work in smaller bite size pieces, you know, that that delivered setups and punchlines. And we didn't necessarily even stay on the stage. We'd work the room. So then our, uh, you know, a scene would take place, you know, all through the room, you know. So if one guy was on stage, then. One of us would be coming from the back of the room and, you know, somebody would be sitting in a chair. So we just used the entire space to kind of, you know, uh, 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 perform and, and figure out how we were going to execute these ideas. So that's kind of the way we went about it. So when we came into places, when we would eventually come to New York and to Boston and we're doing stand-up New York and the comic strip and all these places, it wasn't difficult for us to come in and do a 12-minute set. We knew how to do it. We knew how to do it in the space. We knew how to do it in the room. We knew how to pace it in terms of setups and punchlines and jokes. So even when, by the time we got out to, you know, the Comedy Connection out in Boston, again, you know, um, we've spent a lot of time working in these confines. And and I think part of the surprise for the club owners and even for the other comics is that in their mind, they're looking going, hey, look, it's an improv group. When are they going to ask for a suggestion for a name? And we never did it. And so and so, you're doing really well with this group. What is the motivation or what happened where you just said, you know, I'm not going to perform anymore. I'm going to write and produce and create. What was that moment? What happened? To, to, to migrate out of uh, on on stage and and then get behind the scenes um i mean to 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 kind of you know uh, you know the long story short version uh it's difficult to keep groups together so while we were while we were in the group uh you know life kicks in you know so uh lance had moved out to new york and he was really gung-ho and he wanted us to all be on board and do that and you know and i came out with him but the other guy had just recently gotten married and he wanted to be at home with his wife and that creates friction and 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 it was just it really got difficult because you you are young people at different stages in your life uh and and somebody's version of the dream looks a little bit different than somebody else's and that's just a, you know it's a horrible clash so we would end up breaking up uh i went solo uh, Lance became a solo stand-up. The other friend uh, pretty much left the business. Uh, Lance and I fell out for a while. Uh, we came back together, uh, started writing again. Uh, I was, you know, I, I did clubs and the whole thing. Uh, I would eventually uh, spend a number of years on the road with Bernie Mac as an opening act. He and I had, had uh, you know, over the years just become really close friends, and, and I performed with he him. He was also from Chicago, Also correct? from Chicago. 
So uh, and this is this is his uh, uh, pre Kings of Comedy days. But even in the and even in that time, he was like Jeff Foxworthy. Bernie was playing five thousand seat, you know, uh, auditoriums, you know, before anybody, quote unquote, knew who he was. So I was on the road with him for a number of years doing that. Twenty three years before he got his first television. Show. I know. Right. <laughs> and and um, around the time that Chris, Chris Rock. Uh, had done his Bring the Pain uh, special for HBO and would uh, subsequently get a deal to do his talk show, I was on the road with Bernie. And uh, Chris needed writers. so Now, he, Bernie had gotten a short-lived show. Midnight Mac. Midnight Mac. Right. Were you with him around that time? Yes, I was. Were you working on that show? Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I wrote material for him. I actually did a stand-up set on that show. That's in the HBO vault someplace. Wow. So that was, that, <laughs> so that was his first. And, and so Chris knew you had worked on that. Yeah, but, but, were, I, but I had known Chris already. I, I, I had met Chris in the mid-'80s, you know, out in the New York clubs, traveling, you know, after probably after I, you know, encountered you out in Boston. So I knew Chris during that time. So Chris gets the green light for this show, right. the Chris Rock Show, which is an innovative, unique kind of talk show. And he calls a lot of people to come in and work with them on the show right and as often happens with comedians who get these shows um they had more power back then than they have now to right. do things i'll give you an example when dennis miller started his talk show and got his commitment on hbo he called jeff cesario and he said jeff i want you to be my executive producer right and jeff not in so many words said um Listen, Dennis, that's an amazing thing, but I, um, I, I've never even gotten a cup of coffee on the set before. <laughs> right, I, I, right, I, I right. don't know what to be an executive producer. Right. Like, you're my executive producer. Right. Well, are you sure, man? I mean, I right. don't, you're my executive producer. Four episodes in, they submit the Jim Carrey episode, and Jeff Cesario is an Emmy winner. Right. And 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 here you are, you know, uh, Chris pick some unique special people right. to work with them on that show. Right. Name a few of those names that actually were there with you for that first meeting. Okay, so I'm, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to finish answering your last question and then answer this question. So, <laughs> because, you know, uh, no, I'm going to make the, make the connectors for your people. So, uh, uh, getting off stage and, and, and finally getting behind the scenes, uh, for a short period of time, I was on the road with Bernie, and at Chris's show in New York, while my family was in Chicago, I had a wife and a kid by that time. So I was spending four days a week in New York in the studios at HBO shooting Chris's show. Then on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I would go out on the road with Bernie from New York. I was not going home to Chicago at all. Not really good for a marriage. Not good at all. Uh, uh, so I had to make a choice, and the choice was, well, I never intended to be on stage ever. Like I said, Lance pulled me into that. That was never my choice. I was always writing. So I said, well, you know, I'm back to that. So let me go back to the writing because I think for me, that's where I feel more comfortable. I don't mind being on, but I'm not driven to be on. Going back to your roots also, yeah. you liked being a writer. So so that was the choice there. So, uh, you know, we get to, you know, we get to uh, uh, New York and Chris has pulled together, you know, this staff for his show. Uh, some of the names. Okay. Uh and and I'll say before going through this, I, I really do consider uh, the Chris Rock show to me to be equivalent to your show of shows 
you know, in terms of, of a generation. That's a huge statement. I, I think I and mean, I think it's fairly accurate. When when I when I name these names, <laughs> I think that it's a fair comparison in a in a generational capacity, if you will. So the Chris Rock show. So uh, I'm there. Uh, Lance Crowther is there. Uh, Wanda Sykes is there. Uh, Jeff Stilson is there. Uh, Louis C.K. is there. Uh, Vernon Chapman uh, is there. Brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> All right, so brilliant. Vernon Chapman is, you know, he's been on, on, on South Park for more than a number of years. He did an incredibly innovative uh, show called Wonder Shows, in which was a groundbreaking, insane you know, he had two seasons of it, just insanely funny. You know, Louis is Louis, and Louis has gone through, you know, all kinds of ups and downs before landing on the Louis that everybody is 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 coming to know. 27 years later. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and then, and then there's Wanda. You know, Wanda. Matter of fact, Wanda uh, wasn't on the first season. I'm going to tell you a story real quick, if you don't mind. Go so ahead. please hold your thought uh-huh. there. So at the time, I was representing Wanda Sykes. Mm-hmm. She was Wanda Sykes Hall. Right. She was married to a guy that she, I, I don't know what the story was, but she was not happy. Right. And every time he'd come into the club with her, he'd be with her all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I saw her without him, she would come up, she would hug me. How you doing, Barry? I can't do the impression. And when he was around, I'd go to hug her and she's like, you cannot hug me. Oh, I remember his name. I'm not going to say my, his name. But I remember his name. And so, um, and she told me that she ran into Chris. Right. And Chris said, listen, uh, Wanda, I'm doing this new show and I'm going to call, I'm going to call Barry and I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out when, when the time comes, but I'm doing this thing and I want you to be a part of it. And I told her and she was so excited because we'd done all these showcases and she was killing But no one would give her the shot. And it was very frustrating because I, I felt like I was getting her some great opportunities. And she was converting on every single one. Right. But no one would pull the trigger on a black woman in Hollywood in front of the camera for some reason. I don't know what it was. Or very few they would do that. And so um, I get the call from Wanda about you know six months later or whatever. Um that what's happening with the show is anything happening and i right. said let me find out um let me call chris right i call chris up i say listen are you starting your uh you know your pilot up the show what's what's happening he says uh i like to see if i could get uh wanda sykes in there right he said uh barry i i just i don't even know how to tell you this i said why what what is it man i mean i'm excited about this he said Barry, I just, I had some of my producers. I said, could you just, could you just get the black girl who works at Caroline's to come and do a deal with her and just, you know, do a deal and get her in here. So she's here for the series. I want her. I forget her name, but you know, she's funny. She works at Caroline's. (laughs) Get her down. I said, so that's great news. So what's the problem? He said, Barry, I hired Leanne Lord for the series by mistake. I get to the table read. Leanne Lord is at the table read. And afterwards, I'm like, who's who's that girl? Well, that's Leon, Leanne Lord. You told us to get the black girl from Caroline. Right. No, that's not that black girl. It's a, another black girl. Right. And, uh, and I remember I went back and uh, to my office and put my head in my hands. And I thought to myself, 
how do I tell Wanda this? And I remember I called her up and I told her that, uh, that had happened. Right. And, um, that was one of my last days working with Wanda Sykes. Wow. Because, um, I failed as a manager because in my mind, even though anybody in their right mind would say it's not your fault, in my mind, I think to myself, there's always something you could do or stay on something or know something or keep somebody informed of who the thought never crossed my mind that Chris Rock would not remember her name. <laughs> the thought never <laughs> right. crossed my mind with a guy who called so many people and said, could right. you come here? Could you work there? Right. So that was a mind boggling thing. And, and she ended up, um, getting on the next year, but that's when I wasn't working with her then. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I I knew that story. <laughs> well, because we we worked that first season uh, uh, with Leanne, who's a wonderful lady, and 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 absolutely funny in her own way. But it's an entirely different thing from from Wanda, and and I don't know. I, I think there was probably some frustrations on her part, and it may well have been a shock and a surprise. You know, um, if if you weren't aware that something was about to happen to you and then out of the blue someone calls and says, come do this, why don't you go and do it? It's like, sure, this sounds like a great idea. And, and it's like, uh-oh, this is not you know necessarily. But, but this is an important point about our business. Right. And when I say our business, I don't know in the business, I'm, the, the business that we're in. Um, Leanne Lord had an opportunity to do something. Granted, the circumstances were not right. You have a guy who's the host of the show who's saying, look, uh, I hired the wrong girl. But she had an opportunity to exceed everyone's expectations. Right. And show people that she belonged there and that anyone in the world would hire her again and again and again as a writer, performer. Right. But for whatever reason at that time, even though the odds were against her, it didn't go down. And Leanne Lord is a good person right. and is a wonderful performer and is, uh, never said a bad thing to me or anybody. But the point being, as an artist, it's all about converting, converting the opportunity. And so Ali Leroy goes into that room, and whether you want to admit it or not, you were an equal with a lot of those people in the room, Vernon Chapman, right. Louis C.K., and you might have been, you know, less or whatever, because this is your, really your first real gig. Right, of, it was, the, it was my first regular weekly, and I was telling somebody that earlier today, is that I had worked for short stints on things like comic justice, yeah. and, you know, that kind of stuff. You get called in for a couple of weeks to write something, but this was like the first regular on-staff gig yeah and 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 what i have so much uh respect for you and i'm not just uh shining your ass here and i'm gonna say some things that probably are gonna get me in trouble but i'm gonna say them anyway you run shows you create shows mm -hmm. you win awards but you also are in a situation where you always exceed people's expectations and you've gone on to garner people's confidence in you to run the fucking show and be a leader of men and women and there are people that you started with 
Right. There are people that were in that group. Right. There are people that have been on these shows that for some reason that's eluded them and it hasn't eluded you. And that's the thing that is so amazing about you and that's why you're such a great example for anybody listening or, or our audience out there is, is, is you've seen people take the opportunity and convert it into something special and you've seen people take opportunities and just piss them away. And a lot of people, uh, there was something that a, a great manager um, said one time to me and it was so amazing. A guy named Guyman Cassidy. Mm-hmm. Um, he said to me, uh, Barry, there's a lot of artists that are going to be going home. Right. So a lot of people who are going to be going home soon. And you've worked with a lot of people who've gone home. Yeah. Why do you think you are a guy who's always taken the opportunity and converted it and other artists that you've worked with can't seem to figure out or navigate to get to that level? This is a weird kind of philosophical idea. Um, but, you know, we, we as individuals, we all have an idea of what we think success is and, and, and what is it that's important to us and what do we need to do and why do we need to do it? And, you know, I mean, really, you know, the guy who would you know, leave his house and, and leave the wife and the kid at home and, and, and go work four days on the talk show set and then go another three days on the road. You know, it's like that's an extreme mindset. Uh, and it's not just being willing to put in the time. There's also, uh, you know, this attraction you have to the craft and the desire that you have to to figure out and want to know how it works and why it works. Um, th- just in a quick phrase. The reason that I'm a director now uh, is because, and this is no offense to this guy, I do believe was Andrew Wyman. And I certainly am no Andrew Wyman in the landscape of of television successes. But uh, when I went to the Gregory Hines show in the first uh, uh, season, CBS, and and uh, and I'd never worked on a sitcom before. And, you know, we do our stuff in the writer's room. We come down to the floor and... And if it's not Andrew Wyman, it was Andy something, but I'm almost certain it was Andrew Wyman. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're going through the show, they do the run through, and he's the director, and I'm looking at this, and literally, I thought to myself, I'd never had any inclination to be a director. I didn't think that that was a thing for me to do. But when I saw what he was doing, I went, oh shit, I can do that. <laughs> and literally, that was, I can do that. Now, the road to getting the opportunity to do that and then how do you take advantage of it and so on and so forth. But just to be able to look at what your job okay, wait a minute. So your job is you tell people where to stand and you give them a twist on the line and, and you know, you kind of understand where the story points. So it's like, well, I've been doing that on a smaller scale for years. I didn't know that this is what that was. Oh, this is what that is? Shit, I can do that. And that's when I go, okay, I need to add that to you know to my list of things that I can do I have an an eclectic set of skills you know I have I've shot things you know directed things I've performed I've written so you know produced stuff so I I just have an appreciation for all of these different areas 
of the craft of creating entertainment, you know, and I'm and I'm drawn to it. Uh, and I have sacrificed uh, relationships <laughs> and and my personal welfare and all sorts of things in the name of getting the thing right. You know, uh, everybody isn't drawn to that. And then the other part of it is, uh, you know, when you start talking about being a showrunner and, and, and elevating in terms of the ranks of the business, there's another thing that you have to learn. You know, I, I, I had to learn how to be an administrator. I had to learn how to talk to executives. I had to understand that, you know, that the business of 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 getting this content out into the world and having people be entertained by it, you know, it's like you got to go through these gatekeepers. And so now when I tell people, you know, how are you going to get pissed off at at somebody that wants to give you, you know, notes on your half hour comedy script? Because what you're asking them is, can I have $24 million? That's the question. Can I have $24 million? You're not going to pay it back. If the shit goes to straight to hell, you get 22 episodes of a $2 million per episode. You know, whatever. you're not going to give the money back. Hey, I got an idea. Can I have $24 million? Yes, but we have some questions. And that's the deal. That's the, they'll give you the money but that's the deal they have a few questions and you're a fucking asshole if you don't want to answer the questions you can't take the time some of the questions are going to be stupid but they're giving you 24 million dollars so how do you you know how do you not have regard for the process is it frustrating yes you know do you go into the room with the other creatives and say how stupid the people in the other room are absolutely do you have 24 million dollars no so you're saying you think a lot of your peers who haven't risen to the ranks that you've risen is because they don't know how to navigate with executives. Not navigate with executives, navigate the obstacles because there's lots of obstacles. That's what it's all about. You have to you have to explain to your wife why it's a good idea that you're going to be gone. You have to explain to your friend why you can't get him on this show. You have to explain to the executive in some sort of terms that make sense to them why their idea is a bad one and your idea is a good one and even though they're giving you the money that they should let you do your idea and not their idea and you got to do it in such a way that makes them want to you know talk to you again next week and not cut you know cut people off and burn bridges and you got to learn how to grow and you got to be open to this process because you don't know everything and you're going to find out that there's someone as good as you or someone not as good as you and then how do you deal with that how do you deal with it when you clearly are better at something than someone and how do you deal with when you're not as good at, at something as someone? And then you got to determine, you know, that my path is not anyone else's path, you know, because whoever the guy is standing next to me, you know, I don't know what happened to his mother and how that informs how he deals with what happens when he walks onto the set every day and how he's going to handle the work and how he's going to handle the pressures from home and how he's going to handle the creative enterprise of getting the script off the ground. And what's this politic in the room that happens when you walk in and you're a co-executive producer and this guy's a producer and that guy's a consulting producer. And when should you talk and when should you not talk? And when should you say, I got a good idea and I think your idea sucks and who should you say it in front of and why and why not? How should you couch it? These are all things that shit's like, you know, it's a mind game. 
You know, that's fucking Muhammad Ali going to, the, you know, the Thriller Millennial going, everybody didn't come here to see me win. They came here to see me lose. So how am I going to subvert that effort? <laughs> I have to be conscious of all of that. And, 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 and it's just jokes. You know, I used to go out with, uh, I used to go out with Bernie Mac. And, and, and it is, you're always assessing what you do. When I had never worked a 3,000-seat, 4,000-seat theater as a stand-up, um, that stage, this proscenium stage that's 45, 50 feet across, is an incredibly intimidating thing because you have this sense that you have to fill up this space. And I thought I had to fill up that space by working the stage. You know, well, shit, that's easy to do. A 12-foot wide stage in a comedy club, walking back and forth. You work this side, you work that side, boom, you got it. I'm an opening act. They didn't come to see me. So the first few times I went out with him, I did okay, you know, because I had some solid material, you know, and people coming in, you know, getting their seats fine and stuff, whatever. Um, but it wasn't necessarily landing the way that I wanted. But he had a lot of confidence in me, and I really appreciate who he was as a person and and certain opportunities he gave me as as an entertainer. You know, the places that he took me and, you know, just advice and, and a certain sort of example that he set in terms of being an entertainer. Uh, but what I learned on the stage and the adjustment that I made, and I learned this from Dennis Miller, not through any interaction, just from watching him, um, on this big stage where people aren't there to see me and they're coming in to see Bernie Mac and so on and so forth, I had to understand how do I get the respect of this audience and get their attention without appearing that that's what I'm trying to do? How do I let them know that it's fine to sit down and watch me? I know what I'm doing. I did it by standing still. I would walk out to the mic. <laughs> I'd leave the mic in the stand. And this is right in the height of the Def Jam era. So guys are running around spanking ass in the air and all <laughs> kinds of shit. So it's like I'd walk out. I'd stand at the mic because... In this huge theater, people are coming in. They hear a voice. Where the hell is that voice coming from? Well, the lights are on up on the stage. Maybe it's somebody up there. There's some fucking guy running around. They can't get a focus on it. They don't know what the hell he's saying. It's distracting. I'm standing still. So now it's very easy for them to do two things. See where I am and then understand what I'm saying because I'm making it easy for them. It's a calm, easy delivery. Clearly, I'm confident. Because I'm standing still just talking. I'm not running around like a fucking maniac trying to, you know, <laughs> you know, action people into submission. I'm just standing there talking. And so now my jokes are landing. You know, uh, I'm on stage for two or three minutes. They bang, bang, bang. You know, you kind of got, got a couple of good ones out the gate. You know, they're coming in. They can see me. And so now you just have a whole new confidence. It changed my entire style. So now I'm focusing on my material. Now I can stand there, I can write a bit. If I need to do something a little active, I will. But I understand that it's very important for me that they know that I'm in control. As a comedian, it puts them at ease. It's not that people come in and, and want to feel uncomfortable in a comedy club. The most uncomfortable shit in the world is sitting there watching a guy that's bombing. Now, you, you can be the, the proactive uh, uh, black audience and just boo them off the stage. And this might sound weird, but it's like, I'm kind of not doing this to hurt you. I just want you to get out of here because it's fucking painful for me <laughs> to see you up there. I'm like, get the fuck out of here, man. This is horrible. Why are you putting us all through this? <laughs> so, I mean, it's the, like these are the sorts of lessons that you learn as a creative. Uh, here's a great Chris Rock note. Uh, speaking of, of uh, executives. Uh, 
This is a quote. Uh, Ignore the note. Pay attention to the response. What they say is immaterial. But the fact that this thing that they're pointing at, you know, it's when you take your car into the shop and you, you're going to say some stupid shit to the mechanic. Yeah, think the carburetor. Eh, what, what sound is it making? It's <laughs> clinking. Okay, good. It's coming from under there. Fine. I'll go look at it. You know what the hell you're talking about. But, yeah, there's a noise and there shouldn't be one there. <laughs> and that's, that's the executive's note. There's a noise in this thing. I don't know, something's wrong. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, I think what happens a lot of times, but you've worked on a lot of shows, you know, when you're an executive at HBO, wherever you are, and you're a young executive and you're assigned to a show, which is called a current executive, right? where you're assigned to certain shows and you're assigned to give notes and do things and report back to your bosses. You know, you're in a job where if you don't give any notes or you don't say anything, even if you don't have any notes, if you come back with no notes to your boss, well, you look like you're not doing anything and we don't need you there. And then your job is in jeopardy. So you have to put your fingerprints or try to put your fingerprints on <laughs> yeah, things. I know. And that's how it works. I mean, it doesn't work all the time. I can guarantee you uh, on the John Stewart show, after winning 11 Emmy Awards in 13 years, I guarantee if there is a current executive, they are not making one note. Right. They are not talking to John. They're not saying anything about it. And if they are saying something to anybody, it certainly isn't him. Right, right. <laughs> but when you're starting a show like the Chris Rock show, like you're saying, hey, $24 million, what is it? Hey, listen, we're going to talk to you about stuff. We're right. going to tell you stuff. And that's a great thing. I want to ask you one thing about uh, hold yes. on to that because you said – in your stand-up, you realized that you needed to stay still right. in front of the mic, and they would focus on you. And right. that applied to your other life and how you were working as a writer and, and how they would listen and take notice. But here's something fascinating. Hmm. I watched Chris Rock my whole life right. do a set exactly like that at every comedy club I ever saw him with, standing straight up in front of the mic, right, right there, not moving focused right and then all of a sudden goes out on the road and he says you know I'm, I'm taking off i'm gonna do all these cities i'm gonna do a special i didn't see him in new york doing any comedy right next time i saw him was on that special and he was doing everything that you're telling me that you needed to stop doing he's moving from side to side he's running around but there's he's a reason stopping, he's focusing he's the 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 difference is if you're coming to see Chris Rock, they're paying attention to you because you're you. If you're coming to see Chris Rock and I show up, <laughs> then what do I have to do to give you the confidence that watching me while you're waiting for him is going to be fine? So that was a circumstantial decision. Now, were I to elevate as a stand-up to the level of Chris Rock, who knows what my act then becomes because people are focused on me and there to see me, there to see Ali Leroy doing whatever it is that he's doing. Then may maybe I make a different choice. But when I'm playing a utility position, I have to do that because part of my job is to set the stage for Bernie to come out. You know, and I opened for Chris a number of times as well. So part of my job is to set the stage for the other guy to come out. So in terms of doing that job, you know, I can 
I could go out and go, I'm just going to go out and, and kill. And, 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 and maybe that's why my inclinations as a creative run to these sort of administrative things, because I really wasn't servicing myself. I could have gone out there and tried to do the fucking bomb show and just wreck shit. And I don't give a shit I'm in front of Bernie Mac. I'm going to try and, and steal the show because I want it for me. I actually go out and go, how do I, what do I do here to make this show experience the best show experience? Where do I fit in into this dynamic? Yeah. All right. I got it. So I, I got that really well now. Now I understand. So I want to go, cause we don't have, I don't want to keep you that long here. Um, You've worked with Bernie Mac, Chris mm -hmm. Rock, who to me is, you know, on my Mount Rushmore of comedy. <laughs> right, okay. Um, and you've worked with him on two television shows. Right. You've worked with him on two, three movies. Right. Um, and now, you know, after working with him and doing all these things with the guy who's like the most respected guy in comedy, I mean, it's just, uh, to me... He's an amazing man. He's like, uh, I couldn't say enough things about him as a person, as a man, or as an artist. It just, I, I've, I don't think I've, I've ever met anybody in my life that was so wonderfully accessible, right? Yet, so brilliant and 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 so uh, supportive of the comedy community and comedians and artists and writers coming in and working with him. I've never, I've never known anybody to be as generous as him. It's just an incredible, like he, just to give you an idea, if you are an artist out there and you're an artist that is a household name out there, when you're asking people to do a table read, you should take a lesson from Chris Rock uh, right. because, you know, <laughs> he did a table read on a movie, uh, within the past five years. It was, um, that he was putting together, and he invited a, 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 a former client of mine, brilliant, brilliant comic actor named Tony Cox, who was the little guy from Bad Santa. Right, right. And Tony goes to the table read, and he finishes the table read, and he comes right back to the office, and he's so excited. And I'm like, well, what's that? Are you excited? He's like, the material great? Yeah, yeah, the material was great. Was Chris nice? Yeah, oh, he was amazing. He took me aside nice. But, you know, believe it or not, that's not why I'm so excited, Barry. I'm like, well, why are you so excited? Look at what he gave me. And he pulled out the, you know, it was the new um, I, uh, what is it, iPod with the screen on right, it. Right, so right, right. The television screen right. with the iPod. <laughs> and it was, you know, back then it was like about a $300 right, right. piece of equipment. And Chris had bought every single person at the table read right. one of these things. <laughs> You know, I have a client who, uh, I hope this isn't a bad thing, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a client who just opened for Russell Peters. Okay. Who was doing a tour all over the world. Some, you know, 15,000. Right, right, right. Some 10,000, 30,000, whatever the hell it was. And he says, you know, and, and at the end, he doesn't know what he's going to make because, you know, you're dealing with friends. Right. And at the end, you know, he gets this check and he's like, oh my God, this is like, unbelievable uh, right. thank you and they're walking through this area of this whether it was dubai or wherever it was and russell just walks into a watch store and he buys him like a ten thousand dollar watch <laughs> right and says here man thank you so much for right. for for coming on this tour with me right 
And if you're an artist and you're a household name and you get to that stage, I think everyone could learn a lesson from Chris Rock because there's a lot of artists out there who are doing television shows, who are doing concert tours, and you all know who you are. Right. <laughs> and you pay your opening act shit. You treat them like shit in writing rooms. You don't reward them during the Christmas holiday. Right, right. And you don't treat them as you would want to be treated. Right. And as I sit across from you, I truly believe that you are the kind of guy who is as generous as Chris, is as wonderful as Chris, is as nice to artists as Chris is. You might, you know, you might not be going getting the iPad <laughs> for the group and the whatever, but I don't think you're in that financial league that he was <laughs> right. in at the time, but whatever. <laughs> right. But the point being is I believe you're the kind of guy who who people love and who love being around you. As Owen Smith says, you know, you're just you're just a wonderful guy to be around. So and so I want to talk about this thing as I'm rambling about this because you've worked with these great people, you've done amazing things, and then I hear that Ali Leroy is taking a job on the Arsenio Hall show. Right. Now I say to myself, as the immortal Morty, Robert Morton would tell me <laughs> when I asked him, why is he taking the job at the George Lopez show? Right. I said, I don't understand. Lance Crowther was there. He's gone. The show isn't doing that well, right. Morty. Why are you going there? What are you doing? Right. And he says to me, Barry, this is the scoop, you know? After a show has gone a while, if I come in... And the show gets better, and it garners more respect. I'm going to be a guy that people are going to look at and like, hey, this guy can write the ship. He can turn things around. He can right. make things happen. If the show dies and gets canceled, nobody's going to remember me because it was the first guy that was in there that did the bad right. shit. There's not a lot of jobs out there. I can make a good check, right? And you know, it's what I do, right? Why the fuck are you doing the Arsenio Hall show? And I want to keep in mind, I, I, I know Arsenio. I've been around him. I have nothing bad to say about Arsenio. But this is what I am going to say, which is going to put you on the spot, which you may not want to answer, <laughs> is that I go to the set the first day, I, the first before it even launches, and I walk out onto that set, and I walk through, and I say to Maureen Fitzpatrick right. and Joe Ferrillo and Eric... Pankowski, who's now the executive producer, I right. believe, or one of them. I say, you know, I, I'm not really good with my memory, but I, I, this seems to look exactly like the same set <laughs> that he was on 20 years ago. Am right. I am I hallucinating? Uh, no, Barry, you're not hallucinating. Um, it is the uh, it is the uh, same set. Arsenio felt comfortable. He wanted things right. to be exactly the same. Right. And then I say, well, can you show me some of the artwork? What are you doing with the logos? Right, and right, it's right. Arsenio with his hands down. Right, 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 right. With the same right. pose that he had 20 years ago. Right. And I thought to myself, I, in all my conversations with Arsenio, because I always thought that, he was a guy who could always do great things. 
And one of my first times meeting him was when I had Dave Chappelle on the Arsenio Hall show. Okay. And during the break, Dave had told me that Arsenio had him come over, you know, in the break, of the commercial break, right, right. and the host talks to get... The first thing that Arsenio said to them after the break, he did a stand-up, sat down. He leans over and he says, uh, I made $90,000 today. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave's like, excuse me? He's like, I made $90,000 today. And Dave's like, what? You get paid $90,000 for the show? No, 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 Dave. My money. My money made $90,000 today. That's what's going to happen to you. Right. <laughs> and so the point I'm trying to make is that he always was nice. And I, when I always talked to him, he said, Hollywood doesn't want me. Hollywood doesn't care about me. And I, there's nothing you can help me with, Barry, that's going to help me figure out how Hollywood's going to want me. Again. Okay. And I thought to myself, here you get your shot, your, your shot in late night. It's a perfect time for you. When Letterman went to CBS, right. Letterman was the king. He was doing things in a way that people loved it. Right. And he changed, he didn't change who he was, but he changed the formula, the look, the way the feel was, the structure of the show. Right. But he didn't lose himself. Right. When Conan moved on to TBS. Right. You feel the differences. When Fallon goes to The Tonight Show, you're going to feel the difference right. of it. And I think Arsenio is a very, very smart man and a very shrewd man. And I just thought to myself as I watched that I can't be alone. I thought, why is this guy recreating something to the T as a replica and not evolving into another area of time when our world has changed so much since then, when Arsenio had his show, there were no plasma televisions. Right, right. There were no rollerblades. Right. There were no iPhones. You couldn't, you know, you, you, you had to go to a pay phone to make a phone call. Right. You had a pager that beeped. <laughs> right, right. And you had to call somebody back. <laughs> right. But he still was living in that world with this new incarnation of the show. And then I see a guy like you take the job on the show and I'm just blown away because you're a guy who I thought and I always believed was a guy who respect outlast cash. Right. And you've worked with some of the greatest who are willing to evolve and willing to change and willing to take things to a different level. Right. And I felt that I felt that I wasn't sure why you took this gig. Right. And what the reasons why, were why you took this gig when I didn't think you had to take this gig. Right. And so I hope that you could explain sort of what is the goal of taking the gig? What do you think is going to happen? What are you trying to make happen? And from what the Arsenio Hall show was until you got there. Right. And what's your vision of what it's going to be after you got there? Well, you know, I mean, in a, in... You know he comes back. Yeah, you know, he comes back with a, with a with a lot of expectation, and you know, and and there's a lot of uh, just some romance to it. You know, it's like that's that's kind of, that's our guy. You know, wh whether you know pro or con, where Arsenio sits in the landscape of of black people entertainment. You know, when he hit the first time, it was Arsenio versus Carson. 
there was nothing else there. So this guy who opened up uh, this door and and gave a platform to you know so many different artists uh, and gave them an opportunity to to be seen you know in a way that they weren't being seen before. Sure, if you were a music act, you could go on Soul Train, but that's not late night TV. You know, so it's just a different landscape. It's a different presentation. It's a different audience. It's a different regard, and he was at the forefront of that. So, so fantastic. He goes away, he comes back. Uh, you know, he's been raising his kid and, you know, he's been doing fine for himself. And, you know, he's been sticking his toe into the water, you know, here and there. And, you know, and, and maybe he feels like, you know, I haven't had this conversation with him. But just as a person, as a man, that blows as a creative, me away. What? That I haven't had this conversation with that him? That blows me away. I can't even believe that. Well, I'll, I'll continue. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, I met with him before the show went up, but, you know, I told him I'm in development and, you know, trying to figure out what the next creative thing is that I want to do. Uh, so I, I had met with him before the show went up, but, you know, just, just business wise, he wanted somebody that could be focused on that and, and spend their time because, you know, it was a big deal for him. And, and I couldn't promise that that's what I could do. So that deal wasn't made. The show went up. Uh, you know, I guess they came out of the box fine, but then just creatively, tonally, there were some things there that that weren't right. You know, you know, he knew it. They fired an executive producer, so you know there were things that shaking. But they up. always fire. This is what kills me. Okay, right. And I, I, I hope you don't mind me talking about, oh, yeah. but this is really important stuff for our audience. So, America tells you, they tell you, right. America doesn't lie. They let you know what's going well and right. what's not going well. So Arsenio goes on his first night and two million people watch the show. Right. And the way our rating system is, that's probably four million people. Mm -hmm. But two million people watch his show. Three months later, less than half of those people mm -hmm. were watching the show. Right. And so, as an artist, what does an artist normally do? An artist normally, do, like, I want to say this. When Dennis Leary did Tooth by Sea with Sandra Bullock mm -hmm. after his agent said, you shouldn't do that, it's not a good script. Right. Um, he said, listen, it's $5 million, I'm going to do it. He said, no, you can't do it, you're going to get money, don't do it, I'm going to do it. When the movie tanked, he fired his agent. Right. I said to Dennis, how could you fire your agent? James Dixon, he's one of the greatest agents in the world. What, what are you doing? And he paused and he looked at me and he said, Barry, I can't fire myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, right. so when they fire the executive producer after the ratings go down in half, right. it's like, don't fire the executive producer. Look in the mirror and say, okay, what am I not doing that's let's tap into our fans and figure out what I'm not doing so I can right. turn that around right. and instead of firing the guy. Mm -hmm. But that's always what happens in our business. The guy gets fired. And I'm not saying that Arsenio said fire this guy. It probably was a bigger push from the network to mm -hmm. fire the guy. Right. But the point being is it's not the guy. It wasn't Lance Crowther that was responsible for the ratings on the Lopez show right. to go down when they kicked them to the curb right. and they brought in Morty and the ratings never changed and it got canceled. Right. 
It's just, it's the guy, the guy who delivers. And George Lopez is a brilliant right. guy and an amazing guy. But he has to look and see there's something that I'm doing here that isn't working. And in George's case, I always felt it was huggable and lovable. Right. Huggable and lovable win the race in late night. Right. But Arsenio is huggable and lovable. Right. And he's an amazing, amazing man. And right. so, and so tell me when they fired the executive producer, then they reached out to you and then did our, but Arsenio didn't have the conversation to say, Hey, what can, what can you do that can help me get the ratings up? I mean, there was just the executives. Well, for, for me, it was this, and he didn't reach out to me. I reached out to him. I did. I reached out to, to a representative. I said, Hey, look, tell him. That I said, if he wants me to come over and, you know, maybe I can help out with some of the material and shape tonally, you know, what you're doing, because it's a different show. When he was doing his show before, it was pretty much a talk show. He got to function largely in the space of a personality. The focus of the show was the interviews. He wasn't doing a ton of comedy. There weren't all these competitors out there. So now he's doing this new show in this new landscape, and 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 he's operating in a space that in a lot of ways is is foreign space for him. It's not foreign to me. So even in terms of being able to to put together a team to execute this type of comedy, how do you shape that? What does it look like? You know, how do you find your tone? I have some experience with that and in an odd way, perhaps more than he does. Uh, and I thought, well, it doesn't hurt me to be there. And in the landscape of experiences and in the landscape of, of, of people who have set the stage for certain things to occur, uh, there's nothing for me to lose. By no, going and standing next to this man and going, if I can do something to help uh, uh, set this ship on the course that you want it to go on, whether that's by having a conversation, you know, contributing a funny joke, saying that I think this is a bad idea and this is a good idea, or saying here's four people that are, are funny that, that the people who you're working with aren't aware of and the people who I'm working with are aware of. So these are the people that should be in your room instead of those people. It's It's... It's Chris saying to HBO executives, go get the black girl at, at Caroline's, and they come back with Leon, uh, Leanne and not Wanda. <laughs> but you have a, I know you have a vision for how the show can be great, and I know how you have a vision how the show can, can increase the audience more and more. And, and I know, and you haven't even told me this, but I know your vision is my vision of things, of how they're going to get better in any situation. And that's more holy shit moments per minute. No, it's more like Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Dude, it's, it's Rudy Giuliani. It's, look, I don't know. I don't know how to increase the ratings. I don't know what any of that shit is. But I know a hole in a window when I see one. And I know I can fix that. I know this is a bad comic choice. I know I can fix that. I know that this person shouldn't be doing this particular type of humor. And this doesn't sound right coming out of your mouth. So let's not do that. So it's just really fixing some some fundamental uh, comedic and entertainment things that maybe you weren't necessarily paying attention to. You're a busy guy. You got a show to run. And and part of that is a trust. Who are the people uh, uh, who are the people uh, who are under you? Who are looking out or supposed to be looking out for your best interest and are they best suited to serve that so and, and really man it's like i'm just running around you know like I say patching up holes and going you know here's a hole here's a hole here's a hole those things may or may not uh uh, uh right that ship they may or may not contribute to you know to gaining a larger audience 
uh, but I but I think it's a it's a positive and solid contribution. And 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 while I'm figuring out what's the next creative thing that I want to do uh, to stand next to Arsenio Hall and have had that experience of working with him. And, and and hearing some of what he has to say as an entertainer who has set the stage for other entertainers and to be in a room with certain people that I might not have been in a room with otherwise contributes to my experience as an entertainer. And so I'm I'm learning. I'm not just there like walking in like, hey, I'm the shit. I'm going to fix everything. I got things to learn in this room. What is a guy who stepped away from the mic for 20 years and comes back? You know, what do you have to learn from that? What type of what type of person do you have to be to, you know, to face that dog down? Yeah, when I left, there was only one other dog in the room. Now there's seven other dogs. The fuck am I going to do now? You know, what what type of integrity do you have to have as a person, as an entertainer? You know, what type of composure do you have to have when people around you are, are, are doubting whether or not you should even be doing this? You know, why are you doing it as a person? What do you seek to achieve? Like all of those are very, very real things. So to stand in the room where that's going on to see how it transpires, you know, what I'm not going to learn anything from Arsenio Hall. Fuck yeah, I am. And I'll take that and, you know, the business experience I can take into my next project. So am I contributing to him? Yes, I absolutely hope so. Will my contribution be able to uh, uh, take his show where it needs to be? No, I can't do that. He can do that or he can't do that. And I can support him. And and maybe, uh, you know, Chris and I talk about this all the time. 90% of success is choice. What thing did you choose to do, you know, and what were your capacities to do that thing better than other people who were trying to do the same or a similar thing? You know, so is coming back to late night talk the right choice. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. You know, can you do that to the best of your abilities and still not be up to snuff with the rest of the guys who are there for whatever the reasons are and how the landscape has shifted and, you know, what's your connection to the audience? And those are a lot of questions to ask. But on the strength of I'm Arsenio Hall and I think that maybe I want to give this a shot, shit, I'll stand next to you and, and fight that fight for a little bit. And if I can help, yeah. Well, you already have helped and it's uh, the show has gotten better and, and I've noticed and so has everybody else. So, And I, I just want to talk a little bit more about this then we're going to wrap up with okay. one thing. But this is what I think. You just said something that Chris said and I'm not going to re- repeat it, but... You know, you make choices of what you're going to do and how you're going to be. And in order to get to where you need to go, in my humble opinion, mm-hmm. especially when there's competition, you know, if you're Eli Manning, you got to figure out how to beat Tom Brady once. You got to figure out how to beat him twice. How do you beat Tom Brady? You beat Tom Brady by working harder than Tom Brady, even though technically you could work probably a hundred times harder than him because he's a hard worker and it would be almost impossible, but you do everything you can so you can outwork him and out navigate him and hope and hope that there's that one thing that happens on the playing field (laughs) that changes the fucking game. Right. And, my feeling again about Arsenio, and this is really hard for me because I actually really feel strongly about him in a great way, but I just don't get the feeling that at this stage of the game that he's willing to outwork the competition, that he's willing to out-navigate the competition. 
Jay Leno still goes to the fucking uh, Comedy and Magic Club every Sunday and works out a set, working, trying to work his chops as a comedian, trying to figure out how to be the best monologue guy in the business right. still to this day. Right. He does 250 shows a year just to work out and to be the best he possibly can be. Kimmel works his fucking ass off, has not only changed his body, he's changed his whole thing. He's changed again. Kimmel evolved from his show. If you remember, his show started off, he had this grandiose idea of how to have talk show guest hosts five days a week right. and whatever. And he changed. He evolved. He worked hard to figure out the metrics of how to evolve and do whatever. And I feel for some reason, and I could be wrong, but I feel like certain artists have like a sense of entitlement from what happened in the past and where they were in the past. And they go into a situation and they feel invincible. Even if there are seven dogs there, they feel yeah. invincible. And I feel that if Arsenio Hall is motivated as much as you're motivated to be extraordinary and to fight and navigate so you continue to get those gigs that nobody else is getting who you started with, I think he will prevail and he will blow away everybody in late night. But as of this point, from an audience perspective, looking from the outside in, and that's what I do because I don't know anything about what happens on the inside. From the outside, out of the seven guys in late night, he there's there's one that works the hardest and there's one that works the seventh hardest. Right. And if Arsenio Hall were sitting right down here across from me and I said, are you number one in terms of working the hardest of all your peers, there is no way he could look me in the eye and say, yes, I am. And I think... Once he realizes that if he can, if he wants it and he wants to make the difference that you're making in your career and that you're doing and that you're trying to do with him, if he can, if he can let down the guard and do that and work that kind of work, that kind of commitment to it, I think that just, he would, he would just take over. But I think that you, if you don't do that, you, these guys are just, they're doing things. You watch Fallon. I mean, he's doing a Fallon's doing like a ten-minute dance number and singing number with Justin Timberlake. You think you just roll out on the set and do that? <laughs> you think you just roll out? Hey, you know, let's get the cue cards out and let's do this thing. Right, right. right. That takes hours and right. hours and hours of preparation. Right. And Fallon started off, and his ratings were worse than Arsenio's ever would be at its lowest point. Right. But he figured out what was going, what he needed to change. And just like you're doing, and I hope you do with Arsenio and you work with Arsenio, I hope Arsenio can look at what these other people are doing and realize, hey, if I put the work in, if I really want to commit, yes, I know I look the same as I did then, but I am older and wiser. But if he, I, I just hope, because you reached out to him, and that's a thing that you did, not for you, you did it for him, and you did it not just for him, but he did it for all the people out there watching to say, hey, listen, we have so much respect for you. I want you to win. I want you to win so badly, not just for you, not just for the show, not just for Late Nut, but for the audience that remembers how you blew us the fuck away, and we want you to do that again. 
we want we want you to we want you to be able to come out on this stage as it were and and experience the sort of uh respect and regard that we believe that you should have like in a comedy club we we don't want to sit and be uncomfortable watching you do a thing feeling as if we want to get up and walk away or we'd like you to get off the stage. You know, we came here to be entertained. We came here to enjoy this. We came here to have a good time. And if you're someone that we care about, we feel badly when we see that things aren't going as well as we would like them to be going for us and for you. So, you know, the last thing on earth you want to have is sympathy and or pity for Arsenio Hall, right? That's absurd. But at the same time, you know, yes, you 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 stepped away from you stepped away from this game for a very long time uh, for absolutely very good reasons. And and as you step back onto this platform and try to kind of reassess who you are, what this is and how you're going to go about making the best of it. You know, well, the first step is getting back in the ring and then you kind of discover somewhere along the line. Oh, OK. How do I relate to this thing that has changed? I've changed. The thing has changed. Uh, so when I come back into it with with a with an old set of sensibilities, well, that's my first connection to it. This is how I know to approach this landscape. But now that I'm in it, I begin to make adjustments. So, you know, what are those adjustments? And then how do you go about uh, making those things real and manifest and and hopefully slowly turning it into something that that you want it to be? So you feel good about what you're doing. Other people feel good about what you're doing. And it ultimately may not even resolve itself on this platform. It might not end up being the Arsenio Hall show. Woof, 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 dog pound posse 2.0. It may have been this is the door that I needed to walk through so that I could go find the next stage in my life and the next uh, persona that I wanted to entertain or the next platform that I wanted to try to conquer. But this was the easiest way to access it through this door that everybody was willing to welcome me through, even though this is not necessarily the room that I need to be in. That may or may not be the case. We shall see. So I, I respect, you know, who's fucking bad enough to sit down for 20 years and then come back and go, let me try that shit again. You know, it's like Michael Jordan coming back and go, hey, I'm going to get back on the team. Really? Are you sure you want to get back on this team? You know, you're 45 and everybody else is 25 and they jump high. I'm going to give it a shot anyway. And then at some point you go, you know, I love this game, but I think I should coach. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, so that, That's what I'm saying. So I, I have I have respect for the man. I have respect for uh, for the resume and I have respect for the the effort to to reinvent yourself, to 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 get back on a horse and see where you want to go with it. I don't know what the end of the journey is, but like I said, for me to have the opportunity to uh, to stand next to that guy and have some of those experience, you know, it's a weird thing getting a vote of confidence. You know, all, all right, so yeah, so, so what, I got some Emmys for writing jokes. You know, when Arsenio tells me that something that I did was good, somehow that makes me happy because I was sitting in a room watching him at the top of his game. So I'm like, that shit still means something. Even, even if I can sit down in the next minute and say to him, uh, I, I have a better version of what you're trying to do than, than, than this thing, and this is how I can help you. That's cool, man. It's just cool. No, it's amazing. Okay, wrapping up here. Uh, tell me your biggest disappointment in the business and your proudest moment. 
Uh, what is my biggest disappointment in the business? You know, man, I don't know, it's, it's weird. I can't, I can't quantify that for you because... There's nothing that happened where somebody took you out or somebody stabbed you in the back or there was some thing that you wrote that you thought was brilliant and then people said this sucks or Well, I mean that you know, I mean those a lot of those things have happened. I mean, I I guess uh you know, I I guess the toughest thing has been uh having some some what I thought were great friendships and what I knew to be great friendships having some of those fractured because of the demands of the business and the stresses of life and as you get older you understand that it's not always it wasn't just you it wasn't just them it was all of these circumstances combined that lead to a particular end based on who you were at that time and who they were etc you know and but like I say you know life life can be long you can stay healthy and you know and you can come back after 20 years and you can fix shit. You can try things again. So um, I don't I don't really view disappointment in that way. My path is my path. And so if I had some things that didn't work out as well as I would have liked them to, him, I guess, well, well, part of that, a lot of that was my own. It was based on the choices that I made based on the information that I had. You know, they say true forgiveness is giving up the belief that it could have gone another way. Do you feel the same way about your proudest moment? Well, yeah, the 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 one moment the, the there is a moment of unabashed happiness that I experienced and I know the moment. It was the moment when we won the Emmy for writing on Chris's show. Uh because I certainly was prepared for that not to occur. And it was a great job and it was a nice trip and it was nice being in that audience and whatever. And when they said our name, I remember yelling and throwing my hands in the air. And that was the <laughs> most that was the singular most exciting personal moment I've ever had uh in the business. And I've had some other great and wonderful moments, but that was a moment where it was just absolute release and it surprised me. Wow, that's great. And the last question is uh you know, all the people out there who listen to this podcast and who are, you know, some of them are struggling, trying to figure out where they go, how do they get from point A to point B or whatever it is. Two-part question, what advice do you have for executives? Because you've dealt with a lot of executives, people who are in positions of power. How does somebody who wants to be in the business but not be in the artistry business what advice would you have for them to become great at what they do the kind of executives that you've dealt with that have really figured out how to navigate and what advice would you give for the young artist who's just trying to figure out how do i get to the stage of the game where ollie Leroy is i i guess it's uh you have to respect the the craft you know, respect the craft. You know, you, you do have to you do have to work hard. You do have to be informed. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you about Mac Davis and Sonny and Cher <laughs> and, you know, and Norm Crosby and all these sorts of things that I was, you know, exposed to that that create, you know, the ability to, you know, to function in this landscape. You know, you have to be open. You can't shut down. You can't uh, think that it is beneath you. To know certain things you can't think that it is necessarily beneath you to do certain things if you think it is then you need to know why you think it is so there's 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 you know you can always learn 
you know, there's always something that you can find out from somebody. Uh, you do have to confront your fears. And sometimes, sometimes the fear is the fear of appearing ignorant. You know, sometimes, you know, in the name of trying not to seem like you don't know shit, you start saying stupid shit and everybody can tell that you don't know shit. <laughs> sometimes it doesn't hurt to go, you know, I don't get that. Can you explain that to me? Or I've never heard of that. Or really is that, you know, so, I mean, there, there's a certain openness, you know, fearlessness does not always present itself as bravado. Right. So. You know, to be fearless and to be uh, open and vulnerable and available to learn and experience and do and grow is probably the thing that'll turn you into a much greater artist, executive or anything else than coming into the door feeling like you got to prove to everybody that you know what the fuck you're doing when you don't. Because the cats who do know what they're doing look at you and go, that motherfucker don't know what the fuck he's doing. (laughs) You ain't fooling nobody. You're not fooling nobody, man. I've seen a zillion stand ups. You know, you can come out here and fuck that stool all day long. You got one joke. They're buying it, but they're buying it because they wa- they weren't here last week. You're doing the same damn act that all the rest of these guys are doing. What the fuck are you doing, man? You know, now you can walk around, pump your chest, and tell me about how you killed last week. Yeah, you're going to be right here killing it in another five years, and then people going to get sick of this shit, and a guy five years younger than you is going to steal your act. He's going to start doing that shit. And you're going to be at the crib, <laughs> you know, an executive, you know, if, if, if you think for some reason that you don't have um, you don't have to be bothered with reading the whole script or you can't take the time to watch a show. You're so fucking busy <laughs> that you can't care to know who the people who, it's like, really, man, <laughs> guess what? The, the limits of your knowledge are going to be the limits of your experience, you know? There's only so much you can do if you don't know shit. Smart people are going to fucking run it. <laughs> They're going to be here a long time. And if, yeah, you're going to expose yourself. So if you're young and you want to be something, then, you know, work hard, be informed, be open, take chances, you know. And sometimes bravery is failure. So, you know, that's the Arsenio of it all. The brave thing is to even try this shit in the first place. If he fails, so fucking what, you know. I already set the stage for half of what you motherfuckers are doing. So now you mad at me for coming back and trying again. Kiss my ass. I failed before. It's not a big deal. I'll do it again. (laughs) That's great. This has been amazing. Ali Leroy, I am so ashamed of myself (laughs) for going this long without spending any time with you. It's time, uh, man. Please, I hope that after this you don't take another 25 years and shut me down. Now now we got to go to dinner. Now we've we've met at the right time. I would would love to go to dinner. uh, You can take me anywhere you want. Right, right, right. From from, from Boa to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. I don't care where it is. (laughs) I'm going. So, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I I just, uh, from everybody in the audience, I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for asking me. So great. Um, uh, you got to check him out. He's going to have his own podcast, uh, with his, uh, partner in crime, Owen Smith coming soon. Yep. And, uh, as usual, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name And put you on shoulders 
walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.